0: You're listening to the February 25th edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks, managing editor of FilmLink.com. And this is Eugene Hernandez, deputy director of the Film Society. On this edition of The Close-Up, we're featuring an archival conversation with director David Cronenberg from 2005. His new film, Maps to the Stars, opens this weekend. Cronenberg's 2005 film A History of Violence received widespread critical acclaim upon its release, with Manola Dargis calling it a mind-blower. Even so, the film was divisive and controversial among audiences, to whom the mix of comedy and violence resulted in wildly different responses. Cronenberg speaks candidly about these differing reactions, saying that the film asks the audience to twist and turn because he wanted to quote, "replicate the kind of emotional roller coaster" you would have it a normal day, unquote. Cronenberg's latest film, Maps to the Stars, is a biting Hollywood satire that Mark Commode of The Guardian calls a tale of terminal Tinseltown wastrels with a twisted structure of a Greek tragedy and the rictus grin of a freshly poisoned sitcom. The film stars Julianne Moore as a fading actress who is haunted by the legacy left by her legendary mother. Moore won the Best Actress Award at Cannes for her fearless performance in the film. As we consider Cronenberg's latest, let's take a moment to look back at the filmmaker and his career. Moderating our 2005 evening with David Cronenberg at the Film Society's Walter Reed Theater was journalist David Darcy. Let's go now to that conversation.
1: Thank you. Thanks.
2: Okay, 15 or 16 films. Shivers was your first feature, but maybe not your first feature. Clarify that for us.
1: Uh, well, I made two uh, underground films, which uh, are Stereo and Crimes of the Future. How many have seen those? Well, you're right. This is <laughs> uh they, they have been added to some uh, laser discs and, and DVDs as special extras and so on. Um, I consider those to be films and then my first movie was shivers which was called they came from within here when it was first released, uh... only making that distinction because um, uh... I actually got paid to write and direct shivers so i was suddenly a professional and that was that was an important differentiation for me okay
2: before we get to history of violence which i want to talk about a little bit what was it like in those days before nineteen seventy five when shivers was made we're here now celebrating the 30th anniversary of Shivers, which is, you know, it's quite a long time ago. Uh, some of you were not even conceived then. Uh, what was it like getting an independent film shown bef- in, in the early 70s, and where, who saw the films?
1: Well, it, we didn't call them independent films, then. that, that was not a term that was used. Um, they were, uh, perhaps, underground films. Um there was a uh, a co-op started in New York. My my inspiration originally was not Hollywood directly, but it was the uh it was the underground. Underground New York underground in particular. Um Jonas Mikas started a film co-op here and in Toronto we started a film co-op also. It was the 60s. It was do your own thing. It was, you know, you don't have to be part of Hollywood, you don't have to have a distributor. And so the co-op would Give access to the films that you made to whoever wanted to see them, whether it was uh, just film groups, f- film study groups, uh, schools, or just people who wanted to uh, show films on a on a sheet hung up on a on the side street, which is was often the way we did it.
2: But We have this myth, a lot of us here, that the National Film Board of Canada was this warm organization that would support all sorts of things that wouldn't possibly have been supported in the United States. Did they help? Were you on your own or no, was this something had, that the state put, a lot of, put, put money into?
1: Yeah, we had nothing to do really with the National Film Board, but it was an important maker of short films and, and experimental films, but uh, uh, a lot of animation and so on. But uh, every once in a while, somebody there would accidentally make a feature film. And it was a subversive thing because uh, someone, a a director named Don Owen, for example, was supposed to make a film that was a documentary about broken homes and kids running away. And he made a film called Nobody Waved Goodbye, which was uh, with Peter Kastner. Uh, And uh, he used the National Film Board crews and so on to to sneak uh, an actual movie by them. But in general, they weren't interested in fiction. It was a... um, the National Film Board was partly started uh, uh, in, uh, with a documentary. It was John Grierson, was a Scot who came to Canada, and his understanding of cinema was: you show the people of the country. You know, so you're interested in what it was like to be a farmer on the prairies. Uh, there was a, a movie called *The Drylanders*. It, they were docudramas, basically, what it was like to be uh, a, a fisherman in the Maritimes. He would have hated all of my films, like from beginning to end, every frame, believe me.
2: What would he have hated most about them?
1: Um, well, that I think... Oh, you go, that's everything, you know, the sexuality, <laughs> the violence, the but also the, uh, the, the sense of fantasy. I mean, he had a very down-to-earth, pragmatic sense of what was a documentary, what filmmaking should be, and that's what the National Film Board uh, concentrated on Aside from the animation, which, of course, he didn't have much to do with that, I don't think, and that was, of course, there was a lot of fantasy and and playfulness in in those. But uh, I did get money from the Canadian government through the Canada Council. Uh, uh, They didn't have a film program then, actually. I I applied to get some money for, for film, and they said, we don't have one, can you write? Because you can apply to write a novel. So I actually invented a novel that was very Nabokovian, and uh, and you had to have people support you who were p- published poets and authors and so on and they all thought this was going to be a terrific novel and then I got $3,500 and went out and shot my first movie. So that was, if, but if you couldn't write you wouldn't have been able to get a grant and then ne- the next year, and I wrote them about that, and the next year there was a film category. They were very responsive. So uh, for many reasons, actually. I would not have stayed in Canada and been a filmmaker there if it had not been for Canadian government money. They also invested in Shivers, uh, which then became a scandal. That became a huge scandal because government money was invested in this movie, which a prominent Canadian critic called pornographic and obscene. and. Uh, uh, he he was he got the cover of a magazine called Saturday Night Magazine. It said, "You ought to know how bad this movie is. You paid for it," and this was this was my f- introduction to the world of of uh, you know ex- the vulnerability that you have when you suddenly go out with a movie. Uh, and so questions were raised in the Houses of Parliament about whether the government should be investing in pornographic films. And then it turned out that Shivers was the only movie for about ten years that ever actually returned its cost and the profit to the government, so actually the money got paid back,
2: really. But did, I mean, did you have the public, the response from the public that happens so often where if a critic, who's, I assume he was a stuffed shirt, or was he? uh, Oh, yes. Okay, well, we have him, we have him too. Um, If a, and by the way, just reading in Leonard Maltin's film guide this evening, his description for, have you, any of you say, seen Dead Ringers? I'm sure all of you have, of course. You're a very predictable audience. I can't wait for your questions. The guy there who
1: hadn't seen it.
2: Where is he? He's right. Get him. Okay, Leonard, well, okay. You can make your decision on the basis of Leonard Malton's description of it, which was fascinating, but unpleasant.
1: <laughs> As most fascinating things are. <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah, well we'll get we'll get into that. Uh, let's move to history of violence for a second because the the interesting thing, I saw this at the Toronto Film Festival with an audience of film critics who were solemn as hell. Ran into Jim Hoberman from the Village Voice outside, he said, I've got to see this with a Canadian audience. Went to one of the peripheral screenings in Toronto, which is a great audience festival, and said the audience was roaring with laughter what is that i mean what is what what does it tell us about a canadian perspective i know about film critics mm-hmm. tell us about the canadian perspective oh, I, I don't
1: i don't think in this case it is i think it has more to do with a festival audience and expectations um i i must say when i make a movie i try to completely ignore everybody's expectations about what i what i do and I don't think about my other movies, and I don't impose those things on, on any given movie that I'm making. Uh, I think it's a, a mistake you know, to do that. And this also happened at Cannes. The, the movie premiered at the Cannes Film Festival last May, and there was a famous incident which involved an Austrian critic, this was a screening for critics and journalists, saying, and you'll forgive me for the language, but I'm going to quote verbatim, he's, uh, I think it actually was the New York Times critics were chuckling laughing it up and this critic stood up and said shut up you fucking piece of shit critics don't you know that this is not funny it's serious <laughs> now they reported this in <laughs> their blog the, the, uh, did he click his boots when he said that <laughs> they said he was actually a very good and very intelligent critic but once again they felt and I and they were right that they actually had a better handle on what was going on in the movie than he did week because uh, it, it does ask the audience to twist and turn in terms of tone. It's funny, and then it's immediately shocking, and then it's immediately scary, and then it's immediately funny again, and then it's sad and emotional, and it, it does all that. And um, it, it is a dangerous thing to do because it, you're walking a bit of a tightrope and it can backfire on you. Um, what I really wanted to do was to replicate the kind of emotional roller coaster that you would have in the course of a normal day. You know, you you, you read something that's tragic, you're upset, then something funny happens in your office, and, you know, and someone you know phones you and is in a panic. All of these things happen. Why can't a movie have that many moods within it? But I think uh, the, the sort of template for movies these days is very clunky. Uh, normal movies, that is to say Hollywood movies, and those that follow that pattern tend to be, you know, it's now it's sad and the music is sad and the lighting is sad and everything's sad. So you know it's sad, and then now you can move on to something that's funny. And it, it, there's never any mixing uh, of of tones and moods. And uh, uh, people do can get confused, as as you saw. They can think that they're supposed to be solemn because it's you know the new Cronenberg movie, and if they think that's a serious thing, then they, it must be approached seriously. But I've never made a movie that's not funny. I mean, they're all funny. Maybe the brood isn't very funny. I, I was in a really bad mood when I did that movie. <laughs> and it's about the only one that doesn't have genuine laughs in it. You know,
2: Did any of you think the brood was funny?
1: There you go. Oh, God,
2: we've got to hear from him. Uh, but the, the conventional wisdom among producers and distributors is that this clunkiness that you're referring to is what holds the audience's attention is what keeps the audience yes. focused.
1: Yes, well, it's, I mean, there are many theories about what, what an audience will and will not do. And certainly, um, A History of Violence has done reasonably well at the box office in North America and in Europe. I mean, it hasn't been a, you know, a smash hit sensation, but it's been more than solid. So obviously, audiences can respond to it. And the, and the critical response to the film has been actually one of the best that I've ever had for any film.
2: Right. Should we see this as a Canadian perspective on the United States? After all, Canada's the country where an official was quoted as saying about Bush, well, you know, he's a stupid moron.
1: Yes, that official did say that. That was a government appointee. Um, well, not to, to mix things up, but I do think that being Canadian does give you a very specific perspective on America. You're not in America, but you're inundated by the flow over the border, of course, of everything in America, and it's not, and it's not unwelcome, because um, so much of, you know, there's a lot to love about America. it's obvious. Uh, at the same time, we're the less powerful, you know, twin were the undeveloped twin. And, uh, and so there's all kinds of responses on, on that level, but uh, Marshall McLuhan, who, 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 you know, the, the, who was talked about the medium being the message and so on, uh, felt that being, uh, he was able to observe and comment on many aspects of American culture and technology Um, that Americans wouldn't be able to perceive because they're right in the middle of that mainstream and he's outside it. And it's sort of the question is, is a fish the best creature to tell you about the nature of water? Or is it really the fisherman outside who understands water better? You know, so I do have, I think, uh, history of violence is not, I don't think an American filmmaker would have made it the same way. Um, For better or worse, I can't say, but I I think um, there's an element of fantasy there. It's a really, in the film it's a response more to America's mythology of itself than it is a direct sort of almost documentary look at what it would be like living in a small town in America right now
2: how much freedom do you have in casting at a, a film of a budget like that do you I, I mean do you have do you have final cut on on
1: on well, your films does it vary does the casting it do, does vary uh uh but if you if you you can't say that you've really directed a movie if you haven't cast it. I mean, to me, that is one of the essential things about directing. You you must do that. On the other hand, you are dealing with many interesting factors. I mean, uh, casting is a, is a black art. First of all, of course, this movie, History of Violence, costs $32 million, which to me is a big budget for uh, a studio. It's a small budget. It means that the list of actors who can carry that movie is relatively small. So you're immediately narrowing your range when the higher the budget is the, the narrower your range is actually of, of actors that you can have to play the lead. So I'm, it's a game that you're playing, you know, and it's sometimes it's Machiavellian, sometimes it's devious. Uh, the way I do it is Machiavellian and devious. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do direct confrontation as well. So. When I came to the project, there were a lot of uh, executives, studio executives, and they all had lists of their favorite actors that they thought should be in the movie. And uh, it, it's, it's really a, a question of, of uh, it's not exactly negotiation, but you, you have to end up with the people you really think should be in the movie, but you have to be reasonable about it. You can't have people who are, whose names are completely unknown star, star, starring in a movie of that budget.
2: Were there any absolutely unlikely candidates that were put forward by executives? And if so, could you name them?
1: I would not name them. But, uh, Just give I, us I the last name. How about initials? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, I can't do that. No, I, the reason I don't like to do that is because when actors are very vulnerable, I mean, they are, they're right out there. It, they seem to be very strong, and they're strong when they're hot, and when they're young, and when they're so on and so on. And, uh, i I hate to to talk about that aspect of it just because of uh, i like i feel protective about the actors, not only the actors who were suggested but also the actors that I ended up casting you know so but yes there were there were i 'd have to say that there were no ridiculous um suggestions sometimes you do get insane i mean really insane you know i mean uh, i, I I have examples they're just ch- ch- quiver, but I don't want to gossip so I won't do that.
2: You're disappointing your biggest fans. Seeing it's seeing in the
1: nature of the relationship. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have to be a bit masochistic to be my fans.
2: You heard it. You heard it from him. What I, what struck me seeing a number of the films from the 80s in the last day or so. Was what you could get out of actors really stretching? Debbie Harry, James Woods, Jeremy Irons. I'm sure I'm missing. Oh, Christopher Walken. Uh, I, I'm. I don't think I'm wrong. I'm not seeing these kinds of performances. And these were mainstream actors even then. Although maybe on the trajectory upward toward that. What was it about the atmosphere then? that resulted in these kinds of performances where You know you had actors really taking risks putting themselves in 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 not the most flattering situations on the screen and uh, Dealing with subject matter that again, you know doesn't seem to be Coming out in mainstream films the way the way it did at that time.
1: Yeah, you can mention James Spader as well. Spader, and and, right? Sure. Yeah, well uh, I think most actors, serious actors, really are interested in pushing themselves to the edge. There's just not that much material around. So if you, once you get an actor like, let's say the the, the actors that I had for Crash, I mean you're talking about Holly Hunter as well, for example, uh, uh, Oscar winner at the time, and um, and she was completely unafraid. I mean she was eager to do that movie, and it's because they're bored with the stuff that they normally get to do. And an actor wants to work, needs to work, and if there's nothing great, they sh- they'll do something good. If there's nothing good, then they'll do something that's bad, you know, but maybe interesting somehow, or pays them well, or, or a shot at a, an interesting place that they've not wanted to visit. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it, 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 that's the way it sometimes works. Um, well, so the, character,
2: the character in Dead Ringers, I think it's Genevieve Bujold, said, I want the money, but I want the humiliation.
1: I don't think she actually said that. You're, you you have very rich fantasy life. I can see that. Uh, I, I like Cronenberg films. Okay. Oh, Genevieve is a very serious actress, too, and she did her Hollywood stardom thing many years ago when she did Anne of a Thousand Days and so on, and was going to be, you know, a hot ingenue and a uh, very beautiful, fantastically talented actress. But she was she's interested in, in art, you know? She's very tough about that. So she she's now does, you know, very... Uh, to, to an American audience, obscure Quebec films and so on. She's still working,
2: but is it different? Is I mean, there must. Is there really less material out there, or are the people who are financing films more averse to taking these kinds of risks?
1: Well, it varies. You know, you are talking about a thirty-year stretch in terms of uh, the, the time that I've been making films. So, it, it has varied from time to time, and. Uh, it uh, It's very hard to get a difficult film made now. Right now, it's very difficult to get an independent film made uh, that's edgy. Even independent films have gotten very conservative. And I mean, that's something that people have talked about vis-a-vis Sundance and so on, that um, from from edgy films that are uncompromising, people are starting to see films that are obviously rehearsals for studio films. It's just somebody looking to to, to do Batman 4 uh, and introducing himself by doing a, a so-called edgy film, and it's it's just the, the tenor of the times. You know, it will change. It goes up and down. Obviously, the sixties and the early seventies were a very different time.
2: Right. What what makes a film edgy? Because there's there's certainly plenty of violence in films now. It's not the vi- oh. it's not the there's no absence of violence
1: yeah. in films now. Yeah. So. Well, um, violence is not edgy. You know, unless you're facing it on the street, then it's fairly edgy, I would imagine. But in terms of movies, violence is just—it's just bread and butter. You know, it's just a, one of the basics. Sex and violence are the, are the basics. Um, if it's—it's it's conflict is the essence of drama, said George Bernard Shaw, and violence is, of course, the most basic kind of conflict. So that I don't think violence will not doesn't give you edge. It's what you see in a lot of movies is, is in the, it's not even real violence, it's attitude, you know, attitude is, but attitude is anti-art, you know, because it, it's, it's a pretense, it's a facade, it's a defensive mechanism, it, it means that you're not really digging deep, you're not going into something real, where that something that makes you vulnerable. If, you, if, you're, if what you're expressing is attitude, then it's all defensive. And you can't be defensive if you're gonna be an artist. You have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to allow yourself to open up. And that's anti-attitude. And you see that with a, a lot of actors. Uh, there's a young actor named Ashton Holmes who will be getting a Breakthrough Actor Award in LA uh, next week. Um, and um, I, 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 History of Violence is his first movie. And I, I looked at a lot of young actors for that role, playing Viggo Mortensen's son in the movie and they were uh, mostly what i got was attitude you know i wasn't getting real emotion i wasn't getting real intelligence i was just getting you know i'm playing a a, a high school student and it's just all attitude not real acting do you think they're getting it from what they see on the screen from the, I mean, they're
2: acting to conform to what they think acting is based on the films they've seen yeah i think so
1: and i think and uh, p- perhaps in their own lives uh, attitude has become a defense mechanism, a way of, of protecting yourself and, and uh, uh, assuming a role that you can play and so on. I'm not sure. Should we? Do you
2: want to take some questions? Yeah, I think we should sure. Go. Okay. Let's uh, take some questions. I'm sure you have some. Yes, sir. We're in the front row. And I'll, re- I'll repeat the question. Uh, The question was, he thought Spider was one of the best films, was it 2002, Spider? And the questioner says, well, it didn't seem to reach a wide enough audience, uh, presumably because it wasn't promoted enough. Could there have been anything done for it to reach a wider audience? And was there a particular inspiration from any director for that film?
1: Well, I'll start with the last part first. Uh, yeah, I was because it was a very English project. I was very I looked a lot at, at uh, directors who I had loved, who were English directors like Carol Reed, and there was a whole raft of British directors in the 30s and 40s and 50s who were who made absolute classics, um, who 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 also dealt often with children. And I looked at a lot of those there was no one person, and I wouldn't say that they were inspirations exactly, but they were kind of models for the the examination of british life, even though spider was different from what they were doing but uh still um there were there was a lot to uh, that seems to be a lost um uh era of filmmaking but for for a while when I was growing up the some of the best films always were were very English, were, were British films. And uh, Carol Reed is one, one of the, he's just a fantastic director. He did uh, The Third Man and Odd Man Out and many other movies. Um, in terms of um, what happened to Spider, well, yeah, it did kind of get lost in the shuffle. It, it was, I almost didn't manage to find an American distributor. And Sony Pictures Classics uh, saved the day. So at least it got a release. But I think it really only had I don't know, 40 or 50 prints in this entire country. You know, very few prints. And um, yes, we—I I guess there was the thought that it could be an Oscar contender because of the performances in it: Ray Fiennes, Miranda Richardson, Gabriel Byrne. They were fantastic. Just Miranda, in particular, playing basically three roles, was in sensational. But it does take money. You know, the, the whole Oscar campaign thing is a very interesting phenomenon. I'm experiencing it again you know, with History of Violence. Um, History of Violence has, for the first time, uh, I have a, a studio behind the movie. It—it it, it, all It's not really very sinister. All it means primarily is making sure that people get to see the movie. And that, in, of course, includes the Academy members. Whether that will result in anything or not is kind of almost beside the point. At least you know that people saw it. I was getting letters from uh, various people, directors like Marty Scorsese, who telling me how great they thought Spider was. But I was getting it six months later you know, into 2003, which means that they didn't see the movie when it came out because it was in so few theaters. And um, yes, they did send a, a sort of a DVD around to Academy members and so on. It, but it's a, it's a strange, you know, it, it takes money to promote a movie. I mean, I think New Line has spent 30 million dollars promoting history of violence which cost 32 million dollars and that's just considered normal and they will make their money back because it's not just what it does in the theater but it's dvd sales and television sales and foreign sales and everything else it costs there's no way that sony classics could have spent a million dollars, maybe two million dollars promoting Spider, you know. So it's 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 uh, very tough economics. But at least the movie lives. It people have seen it, it, it exists on DVD, you know, and people eventually find it. It's the way it goes.
2: Right over there on on the aisle. <clears throat> okay, at the time that crash was about to be released, a particular film critic, Chris Tookie is his name? Uh, requested that it be banned and it was, was it actually banned in certain parts of England?
1: Yes, it was banned in Westminster, which is mm-hmm. where all the good theaters are in London. Right. Uh, okay. and, we'll, and we'll the question that. The question was, were you pissed off about that? I'm still pissed off. <laughs> I'm still pissed off. Not just Chris Tookie, but Alexander Walker, who, who said it was a film beyond the bounds of depravity, which I thought was... That was a pretty good territory to be, <laughs> to be entering, but uh, he's dead now. Um, he's beyond the bounds of depravity. Yes, he is too. He is also beyond the bounds of depravity. Chris Tookie, I have to say, and you can just tell by his name that he's just... A, uh, yeah. um, actually gave A History of Violence a good review. However, he did manage to say... What a surprise. I never thought I'd be saying, you know, that Cronenberg could make And then he went on to slag about five of my films that he hated. But at the end of it, he said history of violence was, was good. Does that make me like him? No, I do not forgive. It, it's it's um, the relationship um, that you have with your critics is a very strange one. You're a critic, aren't you? Yep.
2: <coughs> Next question. Uh, Right here. Uh, The questioner said two of his favorite films are Scanners and Videodrome. Uh, And asked David, well, since then he's gone to more dramatic uh, films, will he go back to the horror genre?
1: Well, I just drooled on myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's got to be your answer. (laughs) Um, Well, I wouldn't hesitate to do another horror film uh, if it were the right one, you know. Um, uh, I was never obsessed with, I don't uh, the horror within, which the human body, which is what you're saying, but it, it's, uh, for me, the, just philosophically, the first fact of human existence is the human body, and I think that that is the beginning and end of us. That's my own personal philosophy, and therefore it requires serious, Discussion in films and examination and I suppose that's why my movies tend to be in one way or another very body oriented And I would include for example spider the very physical very you can smell spider in that movie, you know uh, And history of violence in an, uh, its own way is as well, you know, so although it's those are not sci-fi movies They're still I feel thematically and, and viscerally and tactilely um, Connected with those earlier films, which are which are you know uh, A little more um, fantastical about it. Uh, But I wouldn't hesitate to do another horror film. I mean, I've I've been through this before too. When I did The Dead Zone, uh, a lot of people were saying, ah, now he's moving into the mainstream and that movie's not very gory and it's more psychological and this and that. And then the next movie I did after that was The Fly, which was which was very gory and very definitely a horror film. So I, I, I don't have, I don't make rules for myself, really. It's really a matter of in, intuitive, uh, just a, it's a feeling out process, you know. I just, I just have to, f- there's, as I say, there's no rule book to guide you. You only have your own intuition. And so, uh, but in, just in theory, I have no, I wouldn't turn my back on genre filmmaking. I don't think I ever have actually. Do people who think they know you send you a particular
2: kind of script that yes. seems sort of typecast? Yes. I one today. Tell
1: me about it. No, I can't. To. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I mean, um, and they often make a, a mistake, a very critical one, because they often send me stuff that has to do with the devil and supernatural stuff like Constantine and demons and, and ghosts and stuff, and I actually don't do those. I don't do supernatural. I'm sorry, I don't do ghosts. And that's because of my own atheistic, existentialist, humanist leanings. You know, I I don't really think about afterlife, and I don't particularly want to promote that either. Not not that it's a propaganda thing or anything. It's just, um, I just don't have that empathy for it. I, I certainly understand ghosts in the psychological sense. I mean, certainly, I mean, I can my parents are both dead they've been dead for a long time. I can hear their voices, I can feel them, I can touch them. you know so I'm haunted in that sense, but I don't for one second think that they are floating around somewhere watching me um, so there's a, a, a I could do a sort of a psychological discussion of ghostness let's say, but um uh, I wouldn't ever want to propose it as a literal fact, and that's. Just my, you know, so I, I, I often get uh, scripts like that. People seem to think that it's all one just big, you know, if it's a horror film, it's a horror film. But those are those are very different for me philosophically. And, and, uh, and I don't have empathy for them. I don't have the kind of empathy. I, I couldn't have done The Exorcist. I mean, I could watch it and enjoy it. And I could actually plug into it for the moment for its sort of medieval Catholic frisson and, and all that but it's not something I could never have done that movie because I couldn't have taken it seriously enough.
0: You're listening to The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center.
1: The Film Society app, now available for iOS, iPhone, and iPad, and Android devices, lets you browse and discover our year-round programs and films, get the latest ticketing alerts and breaking festival news, share with friends via social media, create your own custom schedule, and more. Download the Film Society app for free at iTunes and Google Play. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. And now, back to our program.
2: Let's try, uh, yes, in the front row, please. Okay, the question is, uh, the questioner thought that there was a film uh, dealing with cars that was perhaps scheduled to be made or... Uh, would have been made sometime after Crash but was never made what happened to that script and do you have scripts that you would like to shoot if the financing became available that have been around you've been waiting to shoot and haven't been able to find find the money to to make
1: yeah that, that script was called Red Cars and it was about Formula One racing which is something I'm very passionate about and, um, and I have raced cars and motorcycles in the past. And um, I did write that script, and, and, and people who read it really like it. My, my idea was to write a script about car racing that you could en- enjoy even if you hated car racing or you didn't were completely uninterested in it. And it's about uh, the Americans, Phil Hill, winning the world championship in 1961, racing for for Ferrari. Um, I have not been able to get that made. Uh, however, some crazy Italians uh, who are beautiful book publishers, there's a company called Villumina, and they had done a book on Peter Greenaway that was fantastic, huge coffee table kind of art book, and they approached me and they said, you know, do you have anything? We want to do a book with you. And I said, well, uh, I have the script. I don't know. I know. I'm not a graphic artist the way Peter Greenaway is. They got very excited. Of course, it's Italian, and they're Italian, so that was. And uh, they have published this book that's absolutely gorgeous. It comes with a model of the Ferrari that Phil Hill <laughs> drove. It's beautiful. It's graphically gorgeous. They went to the Ferrari archives and got photos uh, from them. Uh, but they also have treated them in a most artful, beautiful way. And it, uh, the book uh, is the script plus photos f- that almost stills from the movie. They didn't get. Didn't get made, and you could go to RedCars.IT for Italy, and you can order one of those books because and that's it's very cathartic because I think that's probably the only that's as far as it's going to go as as it just seems to be a movie that might be too expensive for the uh, audience that could be expected. So uh, it, that is a that is a project that I would start working on tomorrow if it got financed actually. But I don't think that's going to happen. But at least it's this fantastic book. 150 euros—you can't go wrong.
2: Were there any other scripts that you've uh, you've had but haven't been able to to have made because the money hasn't mm. been there? Not really. No. No. Okay. Let's let's think. Let's look at the back of the audience or toward the back. There's a hand right there. Okay. You've often said you don't think about other films you've made when you're making films. This question says one exception would be Existence, which has all sorts of allusions to the Cronenberg film and particularly to Videodrome. Talk, Could you talk a bit about that?
1: You said they're unmissable, but I missed them. <laughs> the <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry, the allusions were unmissable. I didn't mention that. Yeah. Sorry. Um, there's a, I guess it's a kind of a willed you know, amnesia. Um, because I wasn't directly, you know, it's the, the movie isn't really. I don't think of myself as a postmodernist, you know. I, I, so I'm an aspiring modernist still. Um, so there was no, there were no self, no ironical self quotations, deliberately, in that. It really was a concept for I was really interested in the whole gaming idea and uh and my understanding of what technology was and how it is an extension of our body so when it comes back to us it will plug into our bodies and it has and does for sure right now um and so it was a really very direct response to that concept that i was working with the fact that i am you know i have my own Uh, sensibility in my own nervous system, and and, uh, things recycle and do what they do. But I really wasn't um, intending it deliberately to be a compendium, or summing up, or anything like that. Um, I really, as I recall it, writing it and directing it, was doing the same thing I was doing with History of Violence, which I didn't write, which is that you just focus completely on the project at hand once you've decided to do it and you ask the movie what it needs you know you you it's like a child you might your child might not have ended up being the child you thought you had so what do you do you know well you give that child what it needs you know not what you thought it would need or you anticipated it would want so that it can realize itself and that's what i feel that i'm doing with the movie i'm 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 trying to get it to realize itself and i'm not imposing things on it from outside you know I expected you to be more like this so I'm going to push you in that direction good parenting I suppose in terms of the movie so I, I think I did the same thing with existence it's just that because of the n- nature of the what it was it, it, it led me into those body technology things that that I had dealt with before but it wasn't a dir- uh, it wasn't a deliberate. If I thought about it too much, I might have not done it. You know, thinking this is too familiar to me. That's how it felt to me, anyway.
2: Okay. How about in the middle, right there? All right. The questioner read that "Dead Ringers" was going to be made into a mini-series. You read it on the BBC feed. I'd love to know who would be cast in it, um, if it were to be made into a
1: mini-series. How would it be amplified? Well, worse than a miniseries, it's supposed to be a series. <laughs> that could run for years. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it is something that was suggested to me by Carol Baum, who was a, one of the original producers of, of Dead Ringers. And I say original because uh, 10 years before Dead Ringers got made in 1988, we were working on it. It took 10 years to get it made. Um, I think it was the success of Nip Tuck that uh, that uh, generated this idea, um, and um, she came to me with it and said that she thought that HBO would be interested in it, and so it turned out to be. Um, and the pilot is being written at this moment by a, a young writer named Wesley Strick, who who pitched a very interesting version of it to me. Uh, which was very faithful to the tone of the movie. Uh, I, didn't want to, I wouldn't have been interested if it was going to be a really tacky kind of exploitive whatever. I mean, exploitive is obviously a relative term when you're talking about television. But um, nonetheless, it was very emotional, very touching, and seemed very true. And his uh, understanding of where it could go after that was also pretty interesting. So based on that, I said okay, I, you know, I'll be an executive producer, which means I'm fairly uh, arm's length from it, kind of overseeing it a bit, and uh, I, I will have the option to direct the pilot if I want to or not, and st- I could still be. So we'll see what happens. But yes, it's a kind of an interesting voyage. I've, I've flirted with television, series, t- series television, for many many years, including uh, scanners. I mean, at one point, uh, there was. A, I, I met with a lot of studio uh, 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 network executives about doing a, a series based on scanners, and um, it started off really well. And then uh, they kept taking subtracting things. Well, okay, no exploding heads, of course. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not really a war, maybe it's not a telepathic war, maybe it's a kind of a struggle. You know, it, it, it just kind of castrated it left and right until there was really nothing left. And we finally said, oh, well, there's nothing here, so I guess we better stop. And that, that's happened to me several times whenever I've gone to, to try and pitch something. Uh, one of the most recent things I did was with uh, Bruce Wagner who's a, an l a novelist He's a brilliant novelist and a good friend and um uh we went in to pitch something that was based on sort of Apple versus Microsoft but uh, uh, really interesting I mean Bruce is a brilliant writer, and the take on it really was very, very interesting and I thought what he wrote was fantastic we We wrote it together, but you know so much came from him and we got to a certain distance with it and then it just fell apart also. So I've never really, so I don't know what'll happen with Dead Ringers but um, maybe the times are right, I I don't know. I don't know what that experience will be like.
2: Okay, right there. Well, if I can hope to paraphrase that question. Seeing History of Violence, the questioner said she saw how we've internalized the ways that um, plots and formulas have been shown on television, and was there some awareness or recognition on the part of executives that this is happening? Um, is that a is that a more or less? Media at all? Was it your experience that the movie woke up thought leaders in
1: Hollywood or in the movie business at all? No. You are an idealist. <laughs> if it had made half a billion dollars, it would have. But it didn't. Um, I don't think that... Uh, they're not stupid in Hollywood, but, but I don't think they read movies in, in that sophisticated a way, frankly. Um, I must say that I've gotten little notes from some executives, very famous studio executives, uh, saying how great they thought the movie was. They didn't write those notes to me for Spider, I can tell you that. So the movie is appreciated. And they do, they have responded to it. And they do, you know, they obviously like it. And uh, I've been getting a lot more offers from studios. This, This will last about 10 minutes. But I'm sort of, for an older guy, kind of hot almost, you know, right now. Until the next movie comes out, then I'll be, you know, passe again. But, um, uh... So at least it's done something, but that it should do something like what you're talking about, I don't think so.
2: Okay, back there with the blue shirt right there. For how long, how long do, you, do you spend on your first draft and then when you're writing, do you work according to a particular template or you, do, you, do you just let the process go?
1: Well, <clears throat> uh, Existence was the last original script that I wrote that's a couple of movies ago uh spider um I was involved in the rewrites and the same with history of violence I did actually do a rewrite uh, of my own on history of violence and then a couple with the with the writer so there you're you know it's um there's a momentum then there's a there's a script that you're beginning with and and you're you're really a kind of an editor uh, a creative editor um with an original script though I'm very undisciplined I have to say And every script that I've written has followed a completely different pattern. It's partly because it's many years, you know, I I don't, it's years between writing uh, scripts. So um, I don't really have that great rhythm that I think someone who is only a professional screenwriter would have, uh, even though, even for them it varies because it, it, you're always working with other people ultimately, you know, you, you, you are, so it's always a collaboration and there're always other people's temperaments and expectations and understanding of what dramatic structure is and so on so it's never it's not like writing a novel you know it really isn't like writing fiction it's very very it's a strange it's not even an art form writing a a, a, a screenplay i can tell you that i it's been a long time since i've gotten a screenplay that had good spelling You know, I mean, these are professional screenwriters. Some of them are getting a million, two million dollars a script, and they can't spell. You know, to me, that's it's 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 astonishing. Um, They would never make it as as prose writers. You know, but it doesn't matter because you can actually write a good script with terrible grammar, as long as the and terrible spelling and all of that. Uh, But if your dialogue is great, even if it's misspelled, you know. Uh, it's um, and you're, you know so it's a strange it's quasi art form, and uh, I think that's part of the reason that uh, for me it's I never know what to expect when I start to write an original script, you know, and it depends too whether I'm writing it completely in a vacuum on spec and anything goes, <coughs> or I've already sort of pitched it to a producer who's paying me to write it. It would be quite different. Sorry I can't be more helpful.
2: Okay, that the guy with the light colored shirt back there whom I pointed to before. Yes. Okay, the question was, um, on the DVD of Spider, it said that he had never researched anything about schizophrenia. Is that right? Bef- yeah. I see. That he had never re- researched anything about dementia. Do you research your films exhaustively? Did you research, fl- do you research about flies before you made the fly?
1: Well, I knew all about flies before I made the fly. <laughs> you know, who everybody knows about flies? Um, well, I was a junior entomologist as a kid, you know, so I did know about flies. But uh, in terms of schizophrenia, well, that, that is in, has to come in a context, you know. Um, I, it's because now Patrick McGraw, who wrote, Spider knows a lot about schizophrenia. His father r- r- uh, was the medical director of a very famous, huge uh, mental institution in in, in England, and um, he grew up there. Actually, uh, Patrick did. Uh, he said, as he said, axe murderers and schizophrenics were his pram pushers. A pram is a baby carriage. Um, because he, he, his father lived on the grounds of, of this uh, insane asylum, basically. So he grew up fascinated by medical, clinical uh, research uh, and in terms of uh, mental illnesses and so on. So he knew a lot about it, and there was a lot about it in his, in his, um, in his novel. But what I was saying, was that I didn't really want the movie to be a a movie about a disease. I it it really had a more universal impact for me. It had to do with identity and the structuring of identity and so on. And so it was the same when Rafe Fine said to me he wanted to go meet schizophrenics and talk to psychiatrists. I said that's fine Rafe. Go ahead, but I'm not going to go with you because I'm not really interested in sort of replicating a case history. I I really want Spider to He's unique, you know, and it's not. It's this is not a story about a disease. So, um, Rafe did do that, and, and and you know, brought back some of the research and the physical uh, aspects. That's why I say that Spider is a very physical movie, just his body posture, his body language, and everything. But it isn't really. It doesn't really tell you as much about the nature of schizophrenia as the novel does, for example, and it's because. W- I wanted the character to kind of float free and to develop himself and and not be say oh well he, he shouldn't do that He can't speak that way because that's not normal for schizophrenics You know you can talk about what's normal and not for a schizophrenic what what is Classical symptoms and what are not now that's very controversial as well by the way the, the what what schizophrenia is and why it is and what is classical and what is not, or is there can there possibly be such a thing so I wanted to avoid i wanted to sidestep all of that stuff um, i didn 't want to get into the politics of schizophrenia because it as with many diseases, it immediately becomes very political in terms of struggles in terms of uh research dollars and and philosophical approaches to it you know is it is it a Freudian thing you know is it is it something that can be solved by uh, therapy, uh, talk therapy, or is, it, or is it absolutely strictly a brain malfunction problem, you know, is it a ma- brain malformation problem, or is it a, an endocrine problem, you know, th- all of these things. I didn't want to have to get into any of those things. So that's why, it, once again, it's sort of willful ignorance, willed ignorance, that to me allowed me to, to float free with Rafe uh, and create in an artistic way this character rather than to do a clinical study of a disease. I guess that's what that's what that was all about.
2: Okay, let's see. Right here, please. What was it like when you crossed over from what the questioner says was from being an underground filmmaker to being a professional? How did that your, affect your relationship with other Canadian filmmakers? Did you help them? Were you
1: separated from them? Any? I, I try to crush all other filmmakers. That's I think <laughs> I think it's important to be honest about that. Um, I said that in French in France, and it also got a big laugh. So I guess they understood. Um, in fact, it was a you know I did it was coming up from the underground, and and I there were a lot of friends that I had who were underground filmmakers. One of them it was Ivan Reitman, and he's of course very successful in Hollywood. He moved to L.A. a long time ago from Toronto. Um, uh, but others did fall by the wayside and and never became filmmakers for various reasons. And it's um, at a certain point in your career, it, it, you you have to do it yourself. I mean, there's really nobody who can. There's only so much help you can have. You know, first of all, I was. It's been a long time. It was. A long time before I was actually making enough money to survive on, so I certainly couldn't have helped anybody financially. But uh, the other aspect of it is, yeah, we had we had we were all very enthusiastic together and made underground films and, and formed this co-op and so on. But after that, you sort of you you've launched yourself with your own energy, and then it's a question of um, making your own way. You know, I mean, Ivan, for example. For me to make the films that Ivan Reitman has made would be I'd be selling out. But for Ivan, it was not a sellout. Those were the kind of he, even when he made underground films, they were gentle comedies where the nerdy guy gets a beautiful girl, you know. <laughs> and he's still doing that. Only now the budget's like a hundred million. But um, so for him to do that was, you know, that was his way. He wanted to be a Hollywood player and has become that. And 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 to do comedy was what he wanted to do. Uh, and he he's been very strong that way. But a lot of the other Filmmakers that were around me when when I was making underground films uh, They got lost God knows, you know many ways some a lot of it was drugs some of it uh, some uh, Went into television and just sort of got lost in the bureaucracy of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation You know they I mean it was a very seductive thing to do at that point you say I'm going to take a job with the CBC because I can make some money in the meantime all i'll i 'll work on being you know an independent filmmaker but um, uh, then they just got lost in the bureaucracy and the sort of the 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 grind of everyday life and making a career that way um, and so they never they never ended up being directors or or producers of of feature films and so on um, but it was a very gradual process you know and as you as those people sort of Gradually faded away, and you didn't really know they were fading away, and I don't suppose they knew knew it either. You were meeting other people who had come from somewhere else, like younger, in my case, uh, Adam O'Goyan, you know, and Patricia Rosamond, there there are several others in Canada who, who came from a different place, but were were quite strong, and um, and so we've we've sort I've sort of grown up with with Adam, for example, uh, in in retrospect. Uh, because I'm quite a bit older than he is, but still, you know, we ended up going, having films that were that would play at the Cannes Film Festival together, and so on and so on. So it's a it wasn't sudden. You know, it wasn't like suddenly an overnight success or anything. It was always a a gradual. It was a struggle always and very gradual.
2: Uh, in the back, right in the middle there, and we'll have one more question after that. Yeah, it's funny we were talking about that very thing uh, before this. The question said, watching Videodrome, seeing. Now the growth of the cable industry, the reality TV, all sorts of things that we are taking for granted now. What were you thinking about then?
1: Well, uh, there's a whole branch of sci-fi that that prides itself on being prophetic. You know, in terms of technology, Uh, Arthur C. Clarke always liked to uh, point out that he had anticipated satellites and satellites circling the Earth. You know, forty years before they actually existed, and. Um, I've never really been a sort of one of those hardware sci-fi guys, really, I was not intending to uh, prophesy anything or anticipate anything or predict anything. Um, but what happens, I think, is that as, a, as an artist, you, are, you, you allow your antennae to go right out as far as they can and to be as sensitive as possible, which is something I was talking about before. Um, It makes you very vulnerable uh, to pain and to all kinds of other things. But you have to lower your own defenses, and you allow all of these things to pour in, and you allow yourself to see things and to be in touch with things within yourself and in society in general uh, that other people are are hedged against, You know that they they kind of hold themselves against because they're afraid of it or because they they need to repress certain things in order to function. if you do that, if you allow those antennae to pick up stuff that's around, then I think you will inevitably end up predicting things um, just by accident, not because that's your métier. You know, being a prophet is not what I think of myself as at all. But um, for example, even in um, uh, talking about research, actually in rabid, I actually invented stem cell research. You know. <laughs> Nobody's, I should get the Nobel Prize, frankly, <laughs> but I don't think I will. I went to Stockholm recently to get a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Stockholm Film Festival, and it was only because it was as close to the Nobel Prize as I was going to get. Anyway, um, in Rabbit, I posited uh, a device that could neutralize human tissue. Neutralize it so that it could read its position in your body and grow whatever organ or tissue was required that 's that 's what stem cell stuff is um, that was in like nineteen the late seventies you know and I did do a lot of research and when I was reading science because I like to read science, particularly biological science, I could see that that had to be what happened that in a fetus there had to be moments where there was There were cells that were undifferentiated, that had the potential to be any other cell. And it was only in this incredibly complex system of reading physical positioning and and, uh, biochemical positioning that the cells gradually knew that they should grow into an eye cell or a brain cell or or a skin cell as opposed to something else. And so I then thought, well, if I were a scientist, uh, and I and I did go into sciences originally at the University of Toronto, and realized that the science life really wasn't for me, ultimately that's a whole other story. But um, if I were a scientist, I would want to find a way to bring normal cells back to that neutral state, where that you could then graft uh, tissue from anywhere on anything else and grow something else. And then, of course, the the premise of rabbit is that this these neutralized cells decided to grow a new organ that hadn't existed before for this woman because of the, the uh, damage to her digestive system. And of course, she ends up being a kind of vampire because she can digest blood. And I did re- research on vampire bats for that. And they have very short little digestive systems. So they, they can't digest complex proteins. So they, the blood is what they have, to, they have to have that. There's nothing else that will work for them. Anyway, this was, that, that was the process. Um, But once again, I wasn't, it was just an invention, it's the inventiveness of it I liked. And that's what I found out about science, is that it is a long slog, it's even longer than filmmaking, to get to produce something. You know, it's a lot of painstaking detail work, and I I knew I wasn't going to have the patience for that. Um, So I would rather invent my science in my movies than sort of do the hard research. But that means I don't get the Nobel Prize, it's a (laughs) trade-off.
2: Okay, right here, please. Uh, the question was about naked lunch and was prefaced by an anecdote where in the film what what 's the typewriter that you 're talking about uh, the, insect. The, the insect typewriter right the insect insect right insect typewriter with the talking anus, um, and there just happened to be a Hasidic guy <laughs> sitting next to him during the film who having who watching this? Got up and said, "This is the sickest thing I've ever seen." Okay, and did he stay? No, he uh, oh, he left. Okay, bolted out of the theater. All right, um, that's the part. What was the rest of your question? I'm sorry. Okay, the, the second part of the question, I apologize i'm not great at paraphrasing or summarizing this. how did David find his way into making naked lunch, which, on its surface, if i 'm paraphrasing you again, doesn't seem to be all that well shaped for cinema or all that cinematic
1: mm. yeah well um, it, it uh, jeremy thomas is a very is a wonderful producer, very interesting producer he you know he's maybe best known for um, the last emperor, but he's done tons of other stuff, including Crash, and uh, very adventurous, adventurous and very bold, and um, uh, we talked about many things together, and at one point I said, what about, you know, we both love Burroughs, we both loved his work, and uh, I said, well, what about, could we do something with Naked Lunch? He said, I know Burroughs, I'll introduce you to him, uh, let's just think about it. Um, this was very, f- later, it w- the same thing happened with Ballard, you know, with Crash. I said, okay, I think I'm ready for Crash. He said, okay, I know Ballard, I'll introduce you to him, <laughs> and he did. Um, I just thought that um, Naked Lunch would, I realized that it it it, it had to be a, a meditation on Burroughs rather than just uh, a movie of the book, and I knew from my first adaptation, which was of the dead zone that in order to be faithful to the book you have to betray the book you, you a literal transliteration is doomed to fail you know it's just a, a sort of reverent faithful kind of thing well because the two the media the two media are completely different and uh, their strengths and weaknesses are not complementary so you have to reinvent even if it's something as straightforward relatively as The Dead Zone, you have to reinvent it. You have to completely reinvent it for the screen. It becomes something else. Um, and then somehow, it, if it, the magic works, then it reminds people of the original work and it somehow seems faithful, when in fact, if you look at the movie of The Dead Zone, it's completely not faithful to the book. But the tone somehow feels right to people. And um, and so they accept it as as being you know a legitimate version of of the book. With 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 Naked Lunch, um, well, I met Burroughs and and I had some very interesting times with him. And actually went back to Tangier with him. I met Paul Bowles there. Um, he hadn't been back to Tangier for seventeen years, and it was really pretty interesting to do that with him because of course he lived there for quite a while. And and Naked Lunch t- ultimately takes place in Interzone, which is really a sort of a fantasy version of 10 years. And um, it was really, um, I read everything. I mean, once again, talking about research, it's not exactly scientific research, but I read around him. I read Jane Bowles and Paul Bowles and Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac and all, everybody in the circle around Burroughs and, and the Beats and that whole era. and um, and I finally, And I read everything of Burroughs. And I finally came to the conclusion that I It was really, in a way, Burroughs' life that I was wanting to make a movie about. And I asked him, I said, William, I really want to include the moment that you shot your wife to death in this movie and some other things uh, that are biographical. And he said, I don't separate my life from my work. I think it's completely legitimate, so go ahead. And at that point, that's when the floodgates opened. You know, I actually wrote a lot of it when I was in London. Uh, Acting in Clive Barker's movie *Nightbreed*, I was there for three months, uh, playing a lead role in that movie, and um, and I was writing *Naked Lunch* at the time, on on my first laptop. So um, it was, as I say, a kind of a meditation on Burroughs's life and how it interwove with his work, and as always. When that movie came out there were five other movies that did kind of the same thing, you know not, They weren't like Naked Lunch, but they were about writers writing and about the writer Confusing his life with his work and stuff. It's very strange when Dead Ringers came out. There were five twins movies I swear one was called Big Business. It was about two sets of twins or three so it just happens to be you know, I don't know something in the air, but um, uh, that, was, that was how I found my way into it. And in fact, the movie begins with a scene that's actually from a short story of Burroughs's, not from Naked Lunch, uh, called Exterminator. And, um, and so there are many other things in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the movie, including things that I invented, like the talking typewriters, because Burroughs really didn't have much time of day for insects, I have to say, and I did. And I, he, I said, do you have an attitude to Insects. He said, "Well, I think butterflies are pretty." Uh, this is William Burroughs. So, I said, "Well, okay." But he came on the set and he loved the talking typewriters because it, you know, it, it just combined so many things. The physicality of writing for him, you know, and of course he was using a, 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 you know, a portable typewriter in those days, and his fear of, of the centipedes in, in Morocco, you know, the f- centipedes on the wall, and, and his whole attitude to the sort of The insects from Venus, who he thought were controlling people on Earth, but we don't have to talk too much about that. And um, uh, anyway, it combined a lot of things, including the anality of it, the the talking assholes, which are figure prominently in his work. Combined them all in one image, which so he could really appreciate that, even though he had never done that. So there was a real, it's always a fusion of of several collaborators when you make a movie.
2: Was that a hard film to get made? Did did producers resist any elements of that, or did you have to shop around or look around for money for that?
1: Well it wouldn't be the producer was Jeremy Thomas, so that was set. And then it was his skill as a as a producer, wheeling and dealing, and you know, I mean I had to rewrite a version of it for the Japanese because they're not into anal stuff, you know. <laughs> Talking asshole, so I had to kind of fudge that a bit, uh, so we had a special script for them and some other people too. but he it was just uh, interesting to watch him work, you know, and it's, he's, he's like a, it's, it's like a, an, a musician or you know assembling all the chords and the notes and like uh, composing. Um, so I, I, it, it it did take a while to get the movie made, but um, amazingly, it got made. I don't know if it could have gotten made now, frankly. I mean, things have gotten that much more conservative.
2: The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.